Hello, good morning, afternoon, evening, or whatever time of day it is where you are in this fine moment. The astute among you will have noticed that I am not Daryl. He's off for the next two weeks, so instead, you'll have to make do with me. I'm Haya Camps, one of the writers here at TechCrunch. I mostly cover hardware and climate stuff, and today I'm your host for an audio journey through the top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I'm talking to Natasha Mascarenas about the Y Combinator Demo Day, executive changes, and the shrinking diversity in the Accelerator's cohort. I also talk with Anita Ramaswamy about Ethereum's impending merge and what it means for users and the world of blockchain at large. Before we get into all that, here's what's going on in the world of tech news this week. This week, I'm talking to Natasha Mascarenas about the Y Combinator Demo Day, executive changes, and the shrinking diversity in the Accelerator's cohort. I also talk with Anita Ramaswamy about Ethereum's impending merge and what it means to its users and the world of blockchains at large. The biggest news on the TechCrunch side this week was undoubtedly Apple's far-out iPhone event. Here's a few highlights. The iPhone 14 and iPhone 14 Pro were launched. They seemed mostly like an incremental change rather than anything super revolutionary, but it did bring a few fun new features. There's a new video stabilization mode for action videos, there's new cameras, and an SOS emergency mode that can send messages bypassing the cell phone network altogether, beaming your call for help straight to the nearest passing satellite. Apple also launched the Series 8 Apple Watch. It adds better battery life, a low power mode, car crash detection, and new temperature sensors, which are particularly helpful for tracking illness. The temperature sensors are also a great tool for humans who get periods, to track them and to get alerts when there are irregularities. The company also launched the Apple Watch Ultra, which is a far chunkier version of its wrist-worn smart device. The battery life goes for 36 hours and stretches to 60 hours in low power mode. You may not know this about me, but I'm a super eager scuba diver, and I became a dive master about a decade or so ago. I was so surprised to find that Apple included a full set of tools that you would expect from a recreational scuba diving computer in the Apple Watch Ultra. It's also great for triathletes, runners, and wilderness-roaming Apple fans. The event did miss a few things, though. Fans of small phones will remain disappointed. Apple didn't launch an iPhone mini. And personally, I think the lightning cable is dumb and wasteful when everyone, including Apple, is using USB-C for everything these days. It's incomprehensible to me that they haven't switched over yet, especially as the EU is breathing down Apple's neck about settling on the same standard as everybody else. Check out our full Apple coverage on TechCrunch.com. In other news, Connie Loizos reports that the vape manufacturer Juul is in hot vapor this week. The company agreed to pay a 438 million settlement with 33 US states. The company is alleged to have marketed its products to underage users. And here's some news I didn't think I'd ever say out loud on a podcast. It's been relatively quiet around Elon Musk. It may be quiet before the storm, though. Taylor Hatmaker reports that a Delaware judge ruled that Musk is allowed to include new information from Twitter whistleblower Peter Zatko into his countersuit against the digital bird sanctuary. But the clock is ticking. The trial date stands firm on October 17th this year. You can find these stories and a lot more on TechCrunch.com. Right, time to talk with some of my favorite humans in the world, my fellow writers on your favorite tech news website. First up is Natasha Mascarenas. She joins me on the mic to walk us through everything YC and how Demo Day is going for the summer 2022 batch. Natasha, you have been up to your eyeballs in YC. <laughs> I really have. I didn't put it like that, but that makes me feel super hurt. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been an intense few days here at TechCrunch with Y Combinator, with Apple. We've done our other yeah. local event. It's It's been mad. Oh my God. I was just DMing a founder who wanted to get their news out like soon. And I was like, 
any flexibility on the day. And they were like, is something wrong with the day I chose? And I was like, no, you're just not special. Like no right. one's special right now. And we're trying to divide it all up. But of course, YC is always this twice a year event. Demo day is twi- a twice a year event that gets me super excited. So it's been really fun to cover it, especially with like kind of all the executive shakeups that's been happening at YC too. Yeah. So Gary Tan's back. That was kind of a little bit out of left field. What do you think that's going to do to Y Combinator? Yeah. So like a week before Demo Day, YC announced that Gary Tan is going to be the new president and CEO of YC and he's replacing Jeff Ralston. Jeff actually kicked off Demo Day kind of saying bye to everyone, welcoming Gary. And he had this funny quote where he was like, you know, I'm sad I won't be here when the combined value of our companies past one trillion, but it won't be too long from now. And I was like, great mic job. <laughs> I, I was kind of surprised to see Gary take on the role. He, he makes a lot of sense as like a former partner and founder, but I think they're, you know, bringing on an external person instead of an internal person always comes as kind of a shocker. What about you? Yeah, no, totally. I was, I was thinking that as well. And it seems like there's been a lot of shakeups at Y Combinator in general. Not that long ago, they were like, we're going to go all virtual. We're going to do a thousand starters per cohort. And I don't know, I didn't count them, but I don't think we had a thousand this time. No. No, not at all. We had actually the smaller than usual batch. So YC shrunk its accelerator program to, I think this batch is around 240 startups compared to around 400. So about a 40% decrease in total people accepted. And I think the acceptance rate was something around 1.3%. I'm scared that I remember this off the top of my head. Clearly I've been (laughs) caring about this way too much, but yeah, a lot more exclusive this time. Kind of the opposite of what Jeff said just months ago. Yeah, totally. And I think that makes for a really interesting opportunity as well. With a lot fewer startups, you know, I can imagine that each startup gets a little bit more focus and people get a little bit more attention. But also, you know, that brings up some interesting things around the numbers. You know, how have they Mm -hmm. been at selecting startups, both in terms of diversity, in terms of geographic diversity? I hear some rumors that you guys have been doing some thinking about that. (laughs) Well, I'll start like whenever I get like the YC data per batch, the first thing I run to is, of course, the diversity data, because this is one of the most famous accelerators in the world and also one of the most exclusive ones. I think they've done a lot of work with investing in diverse founders. But yeah, I'll run through the numbers really quickly on the diversity front and then kind of one shakeup. Yeah, please. So the summer 2022 batch has 9% of its total founders identify as women, which is down from 10% of the batch prior. So we we lost 1% of total number of women in the batch. And then also YC introduced that it's now letting founders identify as multiracial as an option when tracking diversity, which is skewing a little bit of our numbers because before we could see year over year, this percent of black founders or Latino founders are in the batch. Now, because people that technically could fit into one of those categories would also be counted as multiracial. It's a little harder to track progress, but the high level, 8% identify as multiracial, 3% of founders identify as black, which is compared to 6% the batch prior, and then 6% identify as Hispanic or Latinx compared to 12% the batch prior. Have they started shaking up how they report gender diversity as well, or is it still binary, shall we say? It's still binary. From last time I checked, it was women, men, and then prefer not to disclose. So I don't think there's been any like fluidity expressed there, which is actually surprising. They addressed that like multiracial was something that was long overdue for them. So I'm surprised that they wouldn't also include different gender categories. Yeah, because that seems like the logical next step to me. But yeah, that makes sense. 
So has anything stood out to you with molar cohorts? Are there benefits? Are there downsides? Are people happy? <laughs> I know it's hard to get a sense. I mean, we're not in person I and mean, I'm really bummed because the batch actually was in person. So I thought maybe we'd have a, a good old days demo day, but it looks like that's not the case. The things that have stood out to me so far is this tone that it's a more SF based or at least Bay Area based program. So YC announced that about 30% of the cohort moved to the Bay Area during the accelerator and about 23% were already in the Bay Area when they applied. So we kind of see a bifurcation being created between the people who could or already did live in the Bay Area. And then also this contrast with YC's international focus. We saw so much investment being made on their end in Africa and India, in Latin America. And so to me, that's like an interesting tension we're seeing play out a little bit in the batch statistics or, or metrics. Yeah. I mean, the whole reason why TechCrunch cares so much about Y Combinator is that in effect, it's become a bit of an index fund, right? Mm -hmm. They own a slice of so many startups, including, is it more than 30 unicorns now? More than 60? I think it's actually, it could be 80. They have some of the most valuable companies. Oh, yeah. So YC now counts over 80 unicorns, according to Alex Wilhelm on Twitter. I knew he Do we have any reliable sources? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they have like almost every big a category leader in almost every category. And I think you're so right in saying that, though, because I think people forget like it's not a YC obsession so much so as it is like here are over now 200 bets being made by early stage founders during a downturn with bigger checks, in-person being a dynamic, remote being a dynamic. I don't think we get the chance to look at such a widespread of ideas and funded ideas too often. So that, that's honestly what gets me excited about it. Yeah. Well, and for me, I mean, I don't have any money to invest, but if I were to, I, I would love to invest in an index fund of YC. I think it's, it's a really clever thing to have been built up for so long. And, you know, the quality of the programming is somewhat legendary. The quality of the startups is really, really good in general. And of course, with a 1.3% acceptance rate, I'm curious what happens to the 98 point something that doesn't get accepted. Like, are they just garbage startups or have they they really been able to select the cream of the crop and they don't miss any big companies. Oh man, yeah, that's so true. It's so true. I mean, if you look at the diversity of the batch, for example, like of course they are missing out on talented people just based on the fact that only 9% of the founders in the batch are women. One thing that I will say that kind of answers your question is YC admits that during this batch, 50% of the batch applied more than once. Mm -hmm. And so I do wonder if that's like kind of a signal in and of itself is if you aren't accepted the first time, does it make a lot more sense to apply again and again? I feel like over time, like that becomes less of a thing, but it would be so cool if we saw like what the B team or what people who didn't make YC, but were close, like where do they get put? I'm sure they're really valuable to a lot of investors. Well, and I think the interesting thing there is like if you apply now at a stage of the company that where it makes sense, it probably yeah. isn't going to make sense in the next one, right? Startups move at such an incredible clip that I imagine people who reapply apply with their next company, right? This one didn't work out. Next. Let's try it again. Yeah. That's so real. That's not uncommon either, right? The, the whole idea of a lot of these startups is to fail as fast as you possibly can to not waste time, to not waste resources. And then, you know, Pick a new project, pick a new market to disrupt. Totally. It's also kind of like, this is the second batch that YC is now offering 500K instead of its original deal, which was quite reason, quite quite smaller. I think it was around 120,000, if I'm getting it correct. I'm nodding, so but I have I, no idea. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, like, I think I think that's correct. As you're saying that, though, it's like, when you get more capital, can you take bigger swings? Like, I, that's an interesting thing I'm trying to see play out. And you were one of my favorite stories ever written about YC, which was kind of 1,000 startups in YC, RIP YC. Yeah. I wonder, you saw a smaller this year like do you want to see more of this do you think it could be a trend we see keep going so i'm really torn on this right on the one hand i think what yc is seeing here is that they have a little bit of a crisis of identity almost 
You know, if they want to be an accelerator that does a thousand startups, that looks really different from one that mm-hmm. does a hundred, right? There is a fighting chance that if you're in a room with a hundred people, you can get to know those hundred people. Give it enough time, give it enough interest, and, you know, maybe even split it down to B2B and B2C, then you can meet all the B2B companies in your cohort. With a thousand, yeah. you don't have a fighting chance of that. And I think you get this logical, like, layer split almost into the kind of companies that you want to spend time with and the kind of the cohort learning and that kind of thing. The programming itself is good, but really, you end up with, if you don't have the chance to really help each other out and kind of have this sense of family and sense of connection with your other companies, I believe that is one of the strengths of Y Combinator. And I think as as the cohort size grows, they lose some of that. I think that's such a good way to put it. Like, it kind of reminds me of how startups work, where it's like, just because you could sell this product to 10 people doesn't mean that 100 or 1,000 people are interested. And clearly YC doesn't have an interest problem, but it could potentially have like a, you know, percent who graduate with funding problem or percent that feel like this positively or dramatically impacted the success of their company that right. kind of makes that dilution worth it. Well, and the crazy thing about the demo days to me is that for you and me, right, we write articles, you know, our investment is, I don't know, an hour, a couple of hours of our time. For an investor... You know, that is very different. If we swing and miss, whatever, you know, there's an article on the site that isn't as insightful or where we covered a company that maybe we shouldn't have covered, whatever. The the downside is very low. But if you're a Y Combinator and you're writing pretty significant checks, each swing you take costs a lot of money. Exactly. Like that, that kind of signal does really go far here. And, you know, one thing that Gary Tan said when I asked him about the future of YC, well, one, he said that he can't really say much right now because he doesn't want to you know, talk out of turn. He starts Jan 2023. So I think we'll see his impact start in summer 2023, not winter 2023. But I mean, he said that he thinks the network only gets stronger as it gets bigger. So I don't think we're going to see uh, the, the focus that I think as journalists, we naturally crave. And I'm sure investors are naturally craving too, which I think is like, it's still a bet from YC. And, and I really hope to your point, they make changes then in order to be an accelerator that can support 1000 startups down the road. Cause right. it, yeah, it looks dramatically different. And I think a lot of their product updates over the last few months have been about distribution and, and being more like loud about their companies. So I see some moves happening, but I think there has to be a lot more work that's done. Yeah, totally. I guess the critic in me is like, yeah, Gary has to say that, right? He can't right, say, I don't believe disagree. in a network. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> then why are you taking this job kind of thing? That's so true. Like you can't really disagree with the fact that you want more startups. And it's the funny part about it where it's like, YC didn't go out with summer 2022 and said, hey, we're going to be more exclusive this time. We're going to accept less startups. They still pitched the same kind of allure and largeness to it. I think that 1000 per batch article came out during them accepting their summer 2022 startups. So it doesn't even matter what is said. We have to see what, what is actually done. Yeah. And one more piece that I wanted to bring up was just, it'll be interesting to see how international startups are impacted by YC going more in person and potentially staying a little bit more focused. I think we're already seeing some drops just in total concentration because of the fact that maybe if you're from India or you're from, if you're from Africa or from different geographies, around the world, you're not trying to move to the Bay Area for three months. Well, and that's where it becomes a little bit scary, right? Are you turning, like when everything was fully remote, you kind of go like everybody, like time zones aside, everybody's kind of on an even playing field. But once you start talking about a lot of it happening in person, this is the same, like if you work at a corporation and you're not at headquarters, right? You end up kind of as a second tier employee. And what I'm worried about for the Y Combinator startups, if you're based in Europe or India or Africa or wherever, Mm -hmm. like if you don't have access to the full set of features and advantages of Y Combinator, like, is it still worth it? So true. I mean, and like, what if you're like the one startup in Nigeria that YC bet on this batch? Like, are you just looped in? 
with other startups in Kenya. Like, I feel like there is such a way to honestly screw that up, which it doesn't seem like I'm seeing any frustration yet on that front. But like, yeah, you kind of have to be really intentional about it. I think YC will always be remote friendly on paper, but time will tell on if it's actually remote. Well, and this kind of works both ways, right? On the one hand, yes, for sure. It's a question of, are they getting the supports from YC? But then again, if you are the only startup from, I don't know, Sweden that's had coverage from YC, you bet that the local ecosystem is going to pay attention. <laughs> oh, right? yeah, so, totally. So that kind of swings both ways. I'm not really sure how to feel into that. But maybe that's an idea to go and talk to some founders and see what their experience has been. Yeah, exactly. I think like when YC went remote, it definitely squashed the local accelerators a little bit. So maybe this is an opportunity for more local accelerators to come back and kind of take back what YC maybe either amplified or, or shown a light on, which is kind of exciting. Positive news. Yeah, totally. Well, maybe we should end on the positive news. (laughs) Let's do it. It doesn't happen often. (laughs) (laughs) Self five. Boom. Let's do it. (laughs) Thank you, Natasha. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you as ever. (laughs) Thanks so much. Up next, I had the pleasure of talking with Anita Ramaswamy about the Ethereum merge. It changes some pretty fundamental things about how the blockchain tech works. I am here today with Anita to talk about a matter close to her heart and one that confuses the hell out of me, which is the Ethereum merge. So this is something that's been talked about or supposed to happen at least since 2016, I believe, and it's coming up now. For somebody who doesn't really understand crypto all that much, what does this mean? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of implications for Ethereum, but I think the most important one, and I'm going to highlight this for you, Haya, as I know you have some crypto skepticism, which is fair. This is actually going to mean a lot in terms of the environmental impact of Ethereum. So that's been a big problem in crypto. It's one of the biggest criticisms that's been leveled against the industry and Ethereum being, you know, the second largest blockchain, at least by market cap. It's going to cut energy consumption by about 99% on the Ethereum blockchain after the merge. So that's probably the biggest thing. Can we just cut 99% of power use for everything that exists? That would be wonderful. The internet. We need a merge for everything. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So it's interesting. So I am, uh, as you so very gently mentioned, I am generally pretty bearish on the crypto. I don't really get it. I don't understand what it's for. And I find it vastly (laughs) wasteful. But the beautiful thing is this thing is going to take care of one of my biggest arguments against it. So actually, I'm excited about the merge, which as I was reading your article, I was like, wait a minute, this actually starts to make sense a little bit to me now. So what does this actually mean? So so I hear that they're changing from proof of work, which I understand that's like processors churning away doing things. Yeah, that's like the miners you hear about, right? Like the yeah. you know, like the everyone hears about the Bitcoin miners with their mining rigs taking up a ton of energy. So yeah, it's a transition from proof of work, which is the way that transactions were validated on the Ethereum network. And by the way, that's still the way that transactions are validated on the Bitcoin network, just throwing it out there. Mm-hmm. Ethereum is switching to proof of stake, which means that instead of using these sort of super expensive, power-hungry computers to validate transactions, it's going to be done using a proof of stake system, which uses a lottery determined by an algorithm to essentially pick which miners, they're actually called bakers under proof of stake, who get to validate the transactions. And as a reward for validating the transactions, they win tokens. So they're sort of depositing their coins, they're securing the network. And in order to, you know, incentivize them to accurately validate a transaction, they get a reward in return. So is the validation thing actually still the same? So, But instead of a thousand miners doing something, it's only one? Or what is the technical difference now? Anyone can still be a staker. Whereas before, it was really expensive to be a, a validator on the network, right? You'd have to buy all of the expensive hardware and the equipment in order to be a miner. And you know, your incentive at that time was sort of different. You weren't getting a payout directly of tokens. You were just sort of 
putting in this massive investment and you were getting rewarded in terms of the price. But now with Ethereum, anyone can still be a staker, but it's still not. This is where there's a lot of debate that comes in, right? Because in crypto, everyone's obsessed with the idea of decentralization. And the idea of being a staker, like technically anyone can do it, but you need a bunch of coins in the first place to even be able to be considered by that algorithmic lottery process. So it's still going to be a lot of pools. Staking pools is what they're called, where individual people like you or I could join a staking pool and we could give our coins to that pool who will then deposit them on the network. And that staking pool would be the one actually going through the validation process on our behalf. And then we'd get the tokens back. But there's still a central entity that's sort of organizing those individual people. So it's not like, you know, unless we're super wealthy and we both hold a ton of Ethereum, it's not like we could individually go off on our own and actually be picked to be a validator. Yeah. The being super wealthy thing isn't really my problem. I don't know. but <laughs> I, I don't have that issue either. Right. So would you say that not having a stake would be a mistake? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I love that you have the puns real time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious though, because I mean, the staking thing on some blockchains, when you stake, you have to stake for a certain amount of time, right? So you say, here's my coins, you lock them up for a while for, I don't know if it's three days or three months or what have you. Is there anything about that here? Yeah, I believe there is. So this is one of the misconceptions that people have about the merge because staking has already been happening. So a lot of people have already been depositing their coins on the network. And there's a couple of different phases to the merge. So it's not like it's just happening. September 15th is a date a lot of people have pointed to. We don't know if it's necessarily going to be then or it might be around the 14th or 13th, just depending on, you know, when the system actually is ready for that upgrade. It's kind of impossible to tell. But that's only one part of the merge. So that's what officially will trigger the switch to proof of stake. But the people who have already staked their coins won't actually be able to withdraw those coins until after the Shanghai upgrade, which is happening in early 2023. So it's not like immediately everyone's going to be able who already staked to take their coins out of the network. Yeah, in the research for this, I went on my Coinbase where I have like $10 worth of all the various uh, thingamajigs. Yeah. And I, I staked all my Ethereum as Ether2, I think it's called. Yeah, Ether2.0. I got super confused because they were like, oh, you can't never have your money back until at some point in the future when they do another thing. I was like, cool, I need to talk to Anita about this because I'm confused again. Yeah, so early 2023, <laughs> Shanghai upgrade. It's still not like a specific date that's been determined. But after that, you'll be able to withdraw your coins and you'll also be able to withdraw the rewards that you get, the tokens that you get for having staked in the first place. Nice. Nice, nice. And so what was driving this? I mean, I can see some obvious benefits, the biggest one being energy use. But like, is there a community drive behind this as well, that they want to change the the entire network? Yeah, I think the environmental thing is probably the biggest concern, because when you think about crypto's reputation, how the industry looks to regulators and everything, this addresses a huge concern. But another problem for Ethereum specifically is that demand has been a lot higher than capacity on that chain. So there are a lot of solutions like layer twos that have plugged in on top of the Ethereum layer one network to make it more efficient and scalable. But it's still not great in terms of the speed of how fast you can get a transaction validated. So after the switch happens, after the merge, there are going to be a bunch of different types of scalability solutions that will now be possible that weren't before. One of them is called sharding. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but you know, that's it's a more long term solution that people have been talking about that will help increase the capacity of the Ethereum network. Nice. And so, I mean, the thing that springs to my mind now is like, what's Bitcoin doing? It seems like this has been solved uh, or is about to be solved somewhere. And, you know, the planet breathes a sigh of relief. This is a big, (laughs) it's a big beef in crypto, right? Bitcoin versus Ethereum. And Bitcoin Uh has absolutely no plans as far as anyone can really tell to make any sort of switch 
to proof of stake. So it's sort of an ideological thing, right? You know, you got people on both sides who are saying our system is actually more decentralized. You know, that's sort of a wash to me. I I don't really have a strong opinion one way or the other because it's all about trade-offs. But no, Bitcoin doesn't have any plans to do this. And so they're going to continue to be a super energy consumptive blockchain ecosystem. And that could actually mean good things for Ethereum. We've seen the price of Ethereum sort of jump. And while the Bitcoin price has been getting hammered in the past week, so it kind of shows you how the market is reacting to this. And it could be a point of weakness for Bitcoin going forward. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was excited. My $10 of Ethereum were suddenly worth $12. And I was like, yes, Woo! I'm rich. <laughs> Made it big. But I'm, I'm curious, though. I mean, it sounds like they're ripping out the engine and putting in a new one while the entire system is still running. Yeah. I think in the article, you refer to it as changing an airplane engine in mid-flight. Now, I'm not an aeronautical engineer, but that sounds like a terrible idea. Are people worried? It sounds scary, but... You know, and I'm not an engineer either, but all of the engineers who I've talked to don't seem to be too concerned because this has been a point of discussion since 2016. I mean, it's been proposed since then. It's been discussed, debated, tested a bunch of times. And so people generally seem to think that it's going to be pulled off. I mean, someone compared it to the moon landing, and I thought that was actually a better analogy where, you know, it is this huge risky thing. It seems like a really big deal, but there's been so much practice and preparation that's gone into this process that I personally wouldn't expect anything significant to go wrong in the process itself. But the question is more about what are going to be some of the longer term impacts and effects. Right. I mean, I did the moon landing essentially without computers. I think there's a lot more computers involved in this one. (laughs) Right. Maybe that gives us some advantages there. So I can imagine people having, I mean, you mentioned there being some discussion. I can only imagine what that discussion in crypto is always uh, very robust and lively. (laughs) Robust and lively. Yeah. A lot of swear words. (laughs) I'm, I'm curious, like what are like the biggest misconceptions people have been having about this? So one of the big ones is around transaction costs. People think that after the merge, all of a sudden it's going to become super cheap to transact on Ethereum. And gas fees have been a really big area of concern because the capacity of the network is so low compared to demand. It is really expensive to get a transaction done. If you want to mint an NFT, for example, costs a bunch of money. And that's why competitors like Solana have been so successful against Ethereum because they have been able to have lower costs. And unfortunately, the merge, at least in the short term, is not going to have any impact on costs because what determines costs is just supply and demand for the capacity on the network. So in the long term, it's possible that with some of the scalability solutions I mentioned earlier, costs may come down. But if demand also rises proportionally, then nothing is going to happen to gas fees. Right. And so just on gas fees for a moment, I know that's not what we're actually talking about, but I've been curious about this. Those are basically per transaction, right? So it doesn't matter if you're moving $10 billion or a Yeah, exactly. It's per transaction. It's basically the fee that you pay to like to prioritize your transaction to actually get validated. Got it. And so if you want it to be happening quickly, you give it a lot of money. And if you want it to happen at some point, maybe you give it not a lot of gas. I think it depends on, you know, the exchange you're transacting on, but usually it's just a fixed cost and it's sort of, it depends yeah. on the time of day and how many people are trying to transact at that point. So if you were to go on Coinbase, for example, and you're, you're trying to do a transaction on the Ethereum network, they'll tell you, here's exactly what your gas fee is, but it might be different an hour later. Yeah, totally. And so these stakers and these staking pools and things like that, what am I envisioning there? Is that people who say, okay, I'm promised not to use this money for a while. And so I'm going to be part of, of a pool. It's people who want the, the token rewards. So if you're trying to earn a certain yield, right, like this is still considered to be risky. And especially I think in the past year or so, I believe staking was enabled about a year ago, maybe a little even before that. 
I remember getting the notification when ETH 2.0 was an option on Coinbase and like seeing, okay, I, I could stake my coins now. So essentially, people are just looking for those rewards. And because it's it's such a significant event in crypto, it is considered risky and yields have been high. So people are sort of doing this with the promise of they're going to earn back a certain percentage once the Shanghai upgrade is completed. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are you personally excited? Yeah, I am. I am excited because I think like you, the environmental impact has been something of huge concern to me. And this just enables a lot more experimentation. Like you don't have to, a lot of these crypto companies that are working on sort of more cutting edge types of technologies and innovations don't have to worry as much about what's the trade-off and what's the cost. So I think from a moral perspective and from a being concerned about the world that we live in perspective, this enables a lot more innovation without the uh, associated guilt in some ways. Yeah. Well, and if I were a startup building in this space, it's a little bit on what you use for your platforms, right? You choose AWS because you trust them. Like, And in this universe, you're like, okay, I want to use Ether, Ethereum chain right. for this. But also, I don't know, I have art, I care about the planet. Maybe, yeah. maybe to kind of get behind that. And this is the thing that's fascinating to me. As you mentioned, it's the second largest by market cap chain. Right. So it's not just, you know, one of the 100,000 coins that are in the periphery somewhere. This is a really big shift for all of crypto, really, as far as I can see. Yeah, it's like a big company making a decision to lower their carbon footprint or something along those lines. And I, I would say this isn't to discount any of the other competitor chains that have come up. I mean, there's a lot who have... There's a lot of chains out there. Tezos was one that comes to mind that have been using proof of stake for a very long time. But Ethereum is just trusted. It's a known quantity. It's used in a ton of high profile projects. So I think when people think about the integrity of the protocol, Ethereum does have a ton of trust and they already have that sort of like baked in user base because they've been around for so long. So if they're able to pull this off, it's going to be huge for the entire crypto community. And I'm sure you're going to see some pressure on Bitcoin as well. Did you just say baked in on purpose? <laughs> no, I didn't. See, you're with the puns. Like, I, I'm doing it without even thinking. <laughs> uh, well, I think we should end on a pun. Okay. Do you have one? <laughs> no, you just did one. It was great. <laughs> Love that. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me. I feel enlightened. I feel like uh, this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for weeks now to really understand it deeper. And thank you for helping. Yeah, thank you, Haya. This was great. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And remember to check out all the stories we talked about in this episode on TechCrunch.com. Also, TechCrunch Disrupt is coming up on October 18th through the 20th, live in San Francisco with guests including Serena Williams, Chris Dixon, and more. Use code TCPOD, all one word, to get 15% off passes, excluding the online and expo versions. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. See you next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamitz with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.